writing is not just expression, it's discovery. So you, you know, you don't just write because you know what you think you write, uh, to find out what you do think, uh, or to clarify where you may have an inkling or direction, but, but writing is a, a practice of discovery. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Claude Acho. He is the pastor of Church of the Resurrection in Charlottesville, Virginia. He has previously served as a church planter and an adjunct English professor in Boston, Massachusetts. His new book is a literary and theological reflection entitled, Reading Black Books, How African American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just. It is available from Brazos Press and your favorite bookseller. My guest today is Claude Acho. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. All right. I am on a roll today. You brought a quote for us today, and I would love to hear what you've brought. Absolutely. So this is a quote from uh, James Baldwin, the author and um, essayist and uh, intellectual. And this is a quote uh, that he gives that I think just captures um, so much of the power of literature. Uh, He writes, you think your pain and your heartbreak are unprecedented in the history of the world, but then you read. It was books that taught me that the things that tormented me most were the very things that connected me with all the people who were alive, who had ever been alive. Mm, I love that quote. Thank you for bringing it to a larger audience. What inspires you with that? There's a few things in, in, in this insight from Baldwin, I think, that inspire me. Um, one, I think there's the, the, the honesty about pain and heartbreak, um, that, that it's a shared reality uh, in the world. And then there's the uh, power and hope that comes from reading. But it's not just that reading in and of itself has, you know, is, is just this, you know, healing balm. It, it's that it's, it has this connective um, dynamic and it, and it brings us uh, into a sense of kind of union and harmony with others as we uh, ex- grow in empathy. We we see, oh, oh, these people have been through what I've been through, or we should see this sort of shared um, shared trial, shared suffering, shared heartbreak. A lot of the things that um, make up what it means to be human in, in a world that's fractured, and then it's the outcome of all of that, which is this this um, connectivity, this sort of union, uh, this solidarity that we get to have with others that maybe. On first glance, we thought, you know, those people are, are not at all like me. Maybe those people are opposed to me. Maybe those people are against me. And I think its quote takes us on that journey. And it, it, it reminds me of the life for which we're made, which is union with God and with one another. And so I, I really just love uh, the way that Baldwin captures that in his own way, in his own flavor. But I think for me, it, it draws me up into this truth that I know that God has for us. I love this quote so much, but the scary thing is hearing the statistics that something like only half of adults have read a single book in the last year, a single book in a year. And so in that, I'm almost flipping Baldwin's quote on its head and saying, if we don't read, 
what is the fruit of that? Mm. Of not engaging in story. Do we become less empathetic? Do we become more isolated? Do we not get to share those fears that we think we're the only person? That's kind of scary. <laughs> it is, and I, I and I think it is. I think it's true. I think there's a huge downside to um, the fact that people uh, don't read or 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 maybe feel overwhelmed. They don't know where to start and they just don't do it, or uh, maybe have to work so much that it's just hard to squeeze in. All all all, all of those you know complicating factors. But I think at uh, at bottom, yeah, I mean, it's a huge loss. It's a huge loss to the sort of formative. Um, power and outcomes that emerge from reading and morally i think we become weaker weaker for for the absence of reading and we become less connected we become less able to do the sort of empathetic imagining uh that baldwin speaks of in this quote you know that that's that's less uh readily available to us we haven't worked that muscle if we're not reading uh particularly reading literature i think um and because of that, you know, it's, you know, no wonder, you know, we are extremely polarized, extremely divided, extremely at each other's throats. Not to say that, you know, reading novels would automatically cure that, but, but it does work against that in, in important ways, I think. And how do you think that literature does a better job of this than, oh, let's say reading the newspaper or social media? Yeah, I think, you know, literature is going to be longer in form, so it's more sustained, so it takes more work, takes more discipline. So naturally, I think the reward, if it's good, is going to be better. And if it's bad, the, re- the outcome will be worse because uh, <laughs> you're, you're with it longer. Mm. Um, so, But I think literature by nature and reading uh, generally also by nature, you know, you're you're sort of submitting yourself in a posture of humility, right? You're You're reading somebody else's words. You're sitting under what someone else has crafted, you're entering a world that you didn't create and you're being receptive to it. And so I think that openness in and of itself is, is pretty virtuous. Uh, we don't do that all the time in conversation. You know, we, we're open to what other people are saying, but usually we spend most of the time trying to formulate what we'll say in response. And there's obviously a give and take in reading, but in reading you're, you're really like, Hey, for these 208 pages, um, here I am and take me on this journey. And I'm 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 with it. I'm on the ride. And so there's a humility, a receptivity, um, and then literature because it's not just story or facts. It's um, a story that's grappling for deep meaning um, in a, in a way that um, I think sinks its teeth into core questions of human life. It, it it's going to cause us to ponder things, right? So so if you read. Um, you know, Toni Morrison's Beloved. It's not an easy book to read, but a great book. You know, you're going to grapple with things about history. You're going to grapple with things about suffering. You're going to grapple with um, the trauma and grapple with slavery. Um, and if you if you do that, you're just going to at least come away thinking life is hard. Things are complicated. And, you know, maybe, maybe I need to think about uh, the suffering of others with a little more patience, you know, with a little, with a little more perspective. Um, well, well, maybe people are really going through something. Um, and, and so it, it just produces a different sort of fruit in you in a, in a way that obviously a tweet can't, but even an article as great as that could be, you're not with it as long. So the formative possibilities are, are, are limited though. They're not negative. They're, they're just not of the same caliber. So I think story has a way to form us. Um, that's unique. One of the words you mentioned was in the imagination. 
And I wonder if that's one of the keys right there is uh, that if we, are we engaging our imagination if we don't give that vulnerable posture to story? And with all the things that we're struggling with as a nation, as a culture, as a world, as a planet, as Christian people, if we aren't engaging our imagination, are we even open to solutions? Can we come up with solutions without engaging that almost organ that's unique to humanity? Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I think that imagine, imagination is one of the, uh, the the forming of the imagination. I think is one of the one of the benefits that that literature offers to us. Um, I think of a friend, Jessica Houghton Wilson, who wrote a book also with the same publisher as as, um, as mine called uh, "The Scandal of Holiness" and how we can be formed through reading literature. That has how how these characters and oft, often in in these good and great novels are sort of like saints that can help form us. We can be inspired by the way they seek to live lives of holiness. And uh, I do think there is a formative power. And you think about, I love film too and, and enjoy movies. It's such a visual medium uh, that it doesn't engage the imagination in the same way that, that literature does. You, you sort of, um, you're constructing more in your mind and you're thinking and you're walking away from reading a few chapters and now you're turning over in your mind, wow, why did this character do that? What would I have done if I was in that situation? Um, oh, you know, this character that I thought was just outright bad. Actually, things are a little more complicated now that I found out, you know, wh what's happened later in the story. What, how, how do I deal with that? Oh, that reminds me of, you know, my uncle, you know, I would have thought of him this way. And, and now I'm, I'm realizing this. So, so because of the sustained sort of attention and form of, of literature uh, in, in when you're in the hands of a good author, what it can do for your moral imagination, how you're going to think about the world, how you're going to think about others is uh, is pretty powerful over, um, you know, if that's something that, again, we give ourselves time to do, right? If we take up that, that task and that discipline. Well, and I, I like the fact that you're bringing up other mediums. And I, I also think film can be incredibly important or the visual arts or music. I mean, I think music is really powerful, but that sustained attention that you get with literature. It can make it so evocative and deeper. Like a song, you can usually engage on an emotional level, but engaging a song on a deep intellectual level is a little bit more challenging. Mm -hmm. And really getting into a character. I mean, you can get into a short term, you can get into a couple aspects of a person, but the totality of a human being, even if it's a fictional human being, you need that time. And like you said, it's almost like we're a little complex. Mm. It's almost like we right. have the God of imagination who mm. made us. <laughs> With all of our little conversation about literature here, it makes perfect sense why you wrote your book. And just as a note, here's how I found out about you was through the Trinity Forum. Ah, yeah. I saw you and Jessica Hooten. Wilson, yes. Wilson. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, that you were both guests on the show about reading. And I just love the Trinity Forum. And I think that the listeners of this show would really, really enjoy it because it's engaging these big ideas. And how can you live a whole Christian life out in the world intellectually, spiritually, socially? It's, it's fantastic. But that's where I heard about you and your book. And the title of your book is Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just. And it was all about literature and poetry. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write this book? 
Gladly. So I've always enjoyed books and, and story and literature um, from from as early as I can remember. My mom was always advocating for reading and, and uh, empowered me to do that. So that's something I've always loved. And in undergrad, I took um, courses to major in English literature. My hope was to be a, a probably a high school English teacher. It was probably my, my dream job, maybe community college English teacher. Um, so I was kind of on that track. And as I was engaging in those studies, um, I had a, a deeper dive into African-American literature. And as I enjoyed a lot of those seminal works, I also found myself wanting and lacking resources to connect the power of that literature into sort of application and reflection for my discipleship as a Christian. So I felt like I had to do those things in my head. So I would read these great novels and then be moved by them and think, okay, what 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 does this mean for me as a Christian? How do, how do I like how do I connect this to my faith? And I almost felt like I had opportunity in my coursework to really obviously have a great book club, right? Discussion and be taught on this literature. And I wish I could have then later on Sunday, been able to do that in the church and to have uh, people guide me through, hey, here's how you can think about this theologically. Here's how you can think about this morally. Here's Here, here are insights that connect to the scripture and all these sort of things. So, I, I, so I, I, I tried to do that in my own head, but that's obviously very limited. And I always felt this sort of, that I was only having one conversation about these important books. And as enriching as that one conversation was, I knew that there was another conversation to be had as well. And so um, fast forward to the beginning of the pandemic, uh, March 2020, um, I mean, like many, just uh, at home and was I was fortunate to be able to retain my employment and just videoing sermons and, and doing all these things. Our, families, uh, our family was safe and we, we were able to just kind of be at home. And I started to conceive the idea to write this book and, and thought to myself, you know, the one book that I have in me could probably be African-American literature read through a, a Christian and literary lens. And so I use that at home time to sort of get the ball rolling on that project, really out of a desire to write the book that I, I felt like I, I wanted and needed uh, at an earlier time and and wanted need even now as well. Uh, and I think I was also helped by uh, in 2020 um, with uh, the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, um, this sort of upswell of uh, a, a national conversation ar- around race. And uh, I felt like I could try to contribute to that in a way that would be enduring, not because of my own wisdom, but because I think this literature is enduring. So I wanted to offer something in that regard as well. Yeah, I noticed in the introduction, you talked about that this is a book that really should be read in a community with others and read slowly. I did not have the luxury of reading it in community because I was reading it for an interview. So (laughs) I didn't have the time that it would take, you know, because it would have been months to to really chew on. I mean, this book is filled with ideas that I will be chewing on for the rest of my life. Mm. Really the rest of my life. And I've already had some little conversations with others about it, but not other people that have had the opportunity to read the book yet. So, but I can absolutely see, I can see where your inspiration comes from. And I love the fact that you're putting all of this in the perspective of that lens of Christ, that it all has to come through the Lord. When you were talking about, you were recording sermons and such. So describe to me what your profession was during the pandemic and things like that. So so that we can kind of understand a framework of where your life was when you were writing this. Yeah. So uh, I've been in uh, vocational um, 
church ministry uh, for the last 10 years or so. Um, and so I was serving at a church uh, in a great church in, in Memphis, Tennessee. And so working as a pastor, a, a, lar- a larger church. Um, and so during that time, as I was kind of conceiving of this, I'm sending messages to parishioners, doing Zoom staff meetings, recording sermons on my phone because we're all in our house, you know, um, and we, we, we have no idea what's happening in the world. And so uh, so that's when I first started really working on this book, um, kind of the ideas of it, and then started writing in earnest. So working as a pastor in, in the pandemic, that was, uh, that was, that was my, uh, my state. Working on the first parts of uh, this work, it must have been hard not having physical connection with your parishioners. Yeah, you know, it it really was. And you know, what was interesting is at the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know how true this was for all churches. Our, our church um, was uh, had some incredible staff. They're also very uh, technologically savvy, so we're able to have a lot of interaction online through Facebook chat as people are like watching the service as we're doing it live. So there was this initial upswell of connection, uh, of sort of like leaning in and longing to be with one another. And then over time that sort of fizzled out, obviously because of the, the fatigue and the challenge of the pandemic as it, as it, uh, endured. Uh, so that, that was really hard. I mean, you know, just uh, not seeing people for, uh, you know, upwards of a year, um, you know, in, in some cases and, and, but also kind of knowing like, Oh, we're actually not far from each other, you know, um, in terms of distance, but we, we just can't be together and, and worship together in some of these ways that, that we're, we're actually made to do. So it was difficult. Well, and I almost kind of tie that a little bit, you know, thinking about physical presence and things like that. I have squirrel brain. And one of the things that I really encountered in your book is you talk about the violence done to Black people, Black flesh. And it just made me really dig into this this theological reality of us being connected body and soul, inter- integrally intertwined in our incarnational existence. The violence done to these bodies is also done to souls, that it can't mm. impact one without, without impacting the other. Mm. And then you go beyond that and you think about us being the body of Christ and you talked about connection and connection, seeing people and connectedness and things like that are just really, really important to me, even though, believe me, I am ignorant. I'll start there, right there. But I want to do better. But here's the thing is, if we're the body of Christ, can we harm one another? Can we ignore one another? Can we insult, enslave, belittle one another without doing precisely that to Jesus Christ? Mm. Mm. So I think that's part of what makes this book such an important read, but such a painful read, Mm. to really face the harm that's been done to God's beloved people Mm -hmm. and to his body. And I'm so grateful for you writing this book for that reason, to bring a completely different light to the Gospels and Mm. the rest of Scripture as well. And so you, you talk about the literature, which I think is very important. And obviously, this is a show all about fiction. It's not really a biblical show, but it's like scripture is God's love story to us, that it is story too, even though it is sacred scripture, it's also story. Would you mind talking a little bit about how reading Exodus as a black man is very different than my experience as a white woman from a historical perspective? 
I, I think, yeah, so I think one of the ways to think about that would be to think about sort of like history of interpretation um, and the way that different groups of people have historically read parts of scripture, and obviously in this case, Exodus. So I think for African-American community, um, you know, as folks may know well, uh, Exodus, you know, obviously connects at a different level because of the shared history of um chattel slavery for African-Americans, and then obviously uh, for the people of Israel, uh, their enslavement in Egypt. And obviously, we wouldn't want to press those connections um, too close in a way that that doesn't do justice to the experiences of both of those, um, you know, collective collective peoples. But obviously, there's 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 deep, uh, deep connection and kind of overlap in a, a sort of um, resonances there that, that are, I think are true and important to, to recognize. And so, so because of that, I think um, history interpretation for reading Exodus for uh, African-American folks, um, they see uh, in that, I think Black Christians see, see in that largely um, the emphasis of God's movement to free his people, right? And they relate to that at a core level, right? This goes not just to uh, to sort of just far off religious history, but like immediate actual history of of, of of immediate ancestors. And it also says something about God in the world. We remember as well in Exodus uh, 34, uh, Moses wants to see the Lord's glory and and the Lord is essentially, you can't see this, but let me, let me you know, hide it, I'll pass before you. But he also reveals his name, um, right? The Lord, the Lord, uh, gracious, merciful, uh, abounding in steadfast love. And slow slow and anger and and all of these sort of things um exodus 34 uh i think four through seven but the point i'm trying to make is that it's within that context that the lord is really um unveiling himself and what is one of the things that he does to unveil himself he he frees he frees his people so the way that that connects with with um black experiences that we can say okay our people have been through this this traumatic suffering though many who initiated that suffering and propagated that suffering, claimed the name of Christ. Here in the scriptures, we see this revelation of who God is. And that revelation, despite the abuses, can can actually lead us to see the truth of God, the truth of Christ. Um, so I think it's read in it with, a, with a sort of um, proximity to real collective uh, wound and, and hurt that Maybe for other readers, um, that's not that's not going to be as immediate, and so it, it has a potency that that's right there on the surface. It's such a reminder that obviously, like you said, there's the historical reality of the people of Israel. Those events took place in that historical period, the Exodus and the the, the Promised Land, and all of this. But it's also that flip side that Scripture is this living story. And that every single one of those experiences was written, not just for every nation, every race, every country, every people, but for you yeah, and for yeah. me. And that he knew that the way that the writers of sacred scripture would record that history would touch our lives and touch our hearts. And I think that this connects to your, your thing of saying that you're trying to help us make our faith more whole and just, that it's like... I just from from having you share your perspective and kind of a more group experience of the Exodus story for African American people that you've helped me you've helped me as someone from a different background live in that scripture more deeply. Mm -hmm. I have been blessed by your generosity of this story 
it's kind of hard for me to put together words well today because these stories touch such a deep, deep center mm-hmm. of things. And one of the questions that came to my mind, and I just wanted to run this by you and see what your thoughts were, and this is not looking for excuses, looking for reasons, but just asking questions. Do you think that kind of a scarcity mentality, you know, thinking that there's not enough, questioning if God will provide, questioning if our God is good enough to provide for all of us, can lead some people to denigrate other human beings? Hmm. I don't know if I've ever thought of that in those terms. Um, that's That's a really interesting question. I would be prone to say... That would make sense to me, um, not as a singular factor, but but as one among many, just because I think there's so, as you mentioned, we're so complicated. Absolutely. That I, I could totally, I can, I can see that. And my mind is even trying to go to stories where, where there's a lack of, um, yeah, where, where there's a lack of embrace towards another human because of that fear. I'm even prone to think about the the parable in Luke 15 of the, the prodigal son, prodigal sons, if you would, um, mm-hmm. the sense of like, oh, there's not enough love in the father's heart. There's not enough feasting at the table. There's not enough celebration. You know, the elder brother's upset. What about um, me and my what friends? What about me? What about me? Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, um, so I do think there is this sort of, yeah, there's a fear. There's a scarcity. I, I think there's also, um, uh, you know, when we think about this even, it makes me think of envy. Um, and, and, and I think, so I think the question is on the right track. Um, you know, we we will um, have jealousy towards even people close to us because we're afraid that the success that they're receiving or the attention they're receiving means that we also can't can't be loved. We also can't be recognized. We also can't um, see a sense of validation, and so we'll we'll envy those that actually we we care about. It's a, it's an up close up close sort of sense. So, so yeah, I think in the human heart, um, I think greed is probably, uh, the other, um, vice I think of, um, which then if you go upstream from that, I think you ultimately end up in idolatry, um, as a fundamental reason why we, why we, uh, why we harm and sin others, um, because of an idolatry, uh, of lack of worship of God and, um, and then downstream leads to, harm towards those who are in God's image. So, so yes, I, I do think there is a, there is a sort of, if you can make some of those connective threads, uh, I think that begins to round out of uh, a sense of why, why do we do this? Why do we see this happen? Well, and, and like I said, I'm not looking for any kind of excuses or anything, but just trying to, like you said, find some connecting threads and then you can see where those threads lead to your own heart, you know, mm-hmm. and, and try to root those out and ask God to heal those wounds just reminding ourselves that he really is enough and he really is big enough to love all of us. You know, you, you even cover that in your book that you have the, um, basically the people that try to make God too small Mm -hmm. so they can fit him in his, in their pocket, that they can fit, that they can manipulate our Lord to fit their, uh, political agenda or whatever, um, you know, trying to make their material gains, what have you. I'm sorry he doesn't fit in your pocket. Mm-hmm. I want yeah. to be in his pocket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That That is a much better way to do things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I think, you know, Baldwin is someone that I, I think really picked up on that idea of um, the impulse to try to control, uh, control the divine um, 
which is a mistake you can make in a lot of different directions. Um, he was perceptive to that. And I don't think that means he had all the right answers, but I think he was perceptive in some of the the diagnosing there. And he has some great quotes about, you know, God is not any God is not anybody's toy, uh, which I think is just a, a very powerful, powerful statement and a true one. Well, and I just finished Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin last night. The thing that, I, that that really struck me, and especially when you're talking about, you know, the prodigal sons and wondering if the father has enough love, that one of the key stories that came out of this, one of the key themes that came out of this story for me was the love of God, the father versus a lack of love from mm-hmm. a human father, mm-hmm. almost a spiritual brutality mm. taken out on the protagonist of the story, this young man who's made to feel inferior by his own stepfather, made to feel, told that he's the image of the devil, that he's the devil's son. I was so grateful to see that this young man was eventually able to find some space to have some spiritual freedom and and relationship with God the Father outside of this relationship with his stepfather. How how much damage that spiritual trauma could do Mm -hmm. to people. Mm-hmm. How hard that must be to try to manage in a world where who do you emulate if not your father? Mm-hmm. So that was that was pretty tough, but very very helpful. But our father is good. Yeah, he's very good. There's one question I wanted to ask. So I'm Catholic. I know that you're coming from a Protestant background. You were talking about being a pastor. Mm-hmm. I am not well versed in any kind of Protestant culture. I like I said, just pretend I'm ignorant because you're probably not far off the mark. <laughs> um, and so, if if you could explain like what your denominational experience was like at the time that you wrote the book, and then I read on social media, horrible me, I was on social media oh, that no. you. I know. I ah, this is the hard <laughs> thing about having like a podcast or a book or whatever is you're kind of like forced like yeah, the, you are poked with a pitchfork yeah. to do this. It's painful. Yeah. But if you could but I I read on social media, I was cyberstalking you that you had <laughs> recently converted to Anglicanism. So if you could walk an ignorant Catholic from where where you started to where you are now, if you don't mind me asking that question. Sure. Yeah. I could speak to that a little bit. Um, yeah. So um, <laughs> maybe the funny, uh, funny tongue in cheek way would be uh, moving maybe closer in your direction, but maybe not close enough um, <laughs> would, would be one way to see it. <laughs> would be the way some might see it. Um, yeah. So, you know, for me, I grew up um, sort of in, in um, Baptist churches uh, as a kid with my mom and g- great church experiences um, there. And um, in high school, uh, we moved to Massachusetts, Lowell, Massachusetts, actually home of Jack Kerouac, the writer that wrote On the Road, uh, if, if folks are familiar with him. And there, uh, I went to Catholic Mass for about four years. Um, there, all my, all my friends from my school did that, um, enjoyed it, didn't think much of it. You know, I was kind of a teen, just kind of going to church, what we did. And then sort of uh, coming out of undergrad as I was kind of making my own uh, choices about church, um, I just kind of went to good non-denominational churches. And that was sort of um, that and kind of Baptistic churches is kind of my realm. And then over the last uh, couple of years, um, 
yeah, I think I just uh, a desire for uh, liturgical worship, a desire for tradition, uh, the beauty of, of the great tradition, I think, of the church, um, along with a lot of the things that I loved about the churches that I'd been a part of uh, prior to that. So, you know, obviously love for the gospel and uh, seeing people uh come to know God's love and in through faith in Jesus and and all these sort of things. So th- those those pieces were kind of coalescing and then I think for myself uh wanting to be in ministry for for a long time I felt a sense of you know I, I think I I do need to sort out a a sort of a home in terms of tradition. Obviously I'm a Christian, but I, I think I need to find my place within, you know, uh within the the big house of of God's family to borrow uh CS Lewis's sort of the the church as a house uh, illustration. I needed to figure out what room I was going to be in, and I think for me, what drew me towards Anglicanism, uh, truthfully, actually, it was really the 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 Book of Common Prayer, uh, the prayer book uh, that's used, which would have uh, a lot of things in common with uh, Roman Catholic, um, Lutheran, Orthodox. Like, there's a lot of sort of ancient kind of rites and prayers there, but it has obviously it's its own distinct thing too. So that really drew me in, uh, which w- came at a time where I was having a hard time praying on my own, and that order was a was a gift to me, and so that kind of set me off um, exploring, reading, and considering. I think uh, a a bit of a higher kind of sacramental theology started to emerge as well. So those would be a couple of the pieces. So I think it was a sense of I, I think I need to find a tradition to kind of put my roots into for myself, for my family. Um, and then it, yeah, the prayer book, the prayer book really, uh, really got me and, um, and you wanting a, a deeper, clear connection to, uh, to the church's tradition. Uh, so that's where I've landed. And I don't want this to sound like a loaded question at all, but do you feel like having some sort of common liturgical prayer enhances community? Yeah, I do. I, I think it does. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, it, you know, knowing that you're kind of praying with the church, even when you're not with the church is a huge gift. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that's, um, yeah, I think, I think that grounds us. I think that's what Jesus gives us, you know, when he gives us the Lord's prayer, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think there, there's, there's more to be built around that for us um, that's rooted in that, centered on that, but, but then extends, extends outward. So I, I do think it's a huge gift. And I think, um, you know, I think the way liturgical churches, you know, the people are, you know, you, you really are worshiping together. You're not watching only, right? You, there's, there's right. A, a, you know, it's God's people coming together um, uh, to, to worship him. Uh, so so I, th- I, I do think there is something there. And, and honestly, I, you know, I do wonder if coming out of the pandemic um, or coming out of the heights of the pandemic, um, if people will recognize that more out of the isolation that we felt that a return maybe to church where you just you're maybe you're not participating in the same way. Uh, I think people will see, oh wait, this this doesn't maybe this doesn't quite feel right. I, I want a, a deeper sense of connectivity. So I wonder if there might be a um, an increase in in people kind of moving in some of those liturgical directions. I, I've been thinking a lot about this since I've read your book. I've been thinking a lot about it from a Catholic perspective. And I was just wrestling with things like I actually go to a mass that's in Latin Mm. and Mm -hmm. um, that you could see it one of two ways, or maybe it's a both and because you talk a lot about how not a lot, but I think it's a valid point that Christianity in the way that it's expressed, and I think this could go for both Catholics and Protestants, the way that it's typically expressed in America is very European. Mm. And so, you know, do non-Europeans feel welcome, feel represented, mm. feel like this religion is for them. And um, 
So I was thinking about, okay, as a Catholic, how do I view this? And I know that there's like tons of African Catholics, but that is different than an African-American Catholic. And I was just kind of rolling all of this around in my head and what does it really look like and things like that. And I was like, well, then I look at the Latin mass and it's like, well, on one hand, we're using this one ancient European language for expression, but the reason that they were using that one language was to try and draw people together. And so no mm-hmm. matter where in the world you were, that you could worship with your co-religionists mm-hmm. in that same language was one of the reasons. And it's like I can see I can see a colonial exp- I can see a colonial yeah. issue to it, but I but it's like then what about the unitive part two? Right. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It makes me think. I, I we were talking before recorded that I don't know where all my books are around me, but there's a book I can see it actually now. It's called The Spirit of the Liturgy. I think it's the oh, that's by Benedict the Sixteenth. Well, so it? there's one. There's one that he wrote, and this one, but this one is by um, uh, I can't remember the man's first name. I, th- I want to say it's R- Rudolf or Rudy Gardini. Um, um, uh, also, uh, also Roman Catholic. Um, and he talks about, I mean, it's a, it's a great book. Um, it's very short, but he talks about that sort of unitive dynamic to the liturgy as well. Uh, but it's kind of to the point where like, you couldn't, you, you can't really change it, you know, um, kind of as you're, as you're mentioning, it needs to stay in that form. Um, yeah, I do wonder about that. I wonder, you know, um, and I know this is a, yeah, this is a, uh, a topic that people have a lot of thoughts and feelings about. Um, I think there is a way to enculturate without losing the truth and the essence um, of, of ordered worship, you know? Um, And so I I think that, I think that matters. Um, But uh, I also understand the sort of the the beauty of, of, of maintaining, uh, maintaining tradition. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I I guess that's, that's probably one of the reasons I'm Anglican because it, 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 there, there is this, this um, fluidity to to some of the form while trying to keep some of this order. Um, so, mm-hmm. so I kind of gravitate in, in that direction, which is kind of the essence of the the Book of Common Prayer that people couldn't they couldn't understand um, and didn't know what to pray. <laughs> so, like, all right, we got to put this in the language of the common people. They don't they don't know what's going on. Um, so, so yeah. And I know I have a, f- a few friends that are in sim- similar position as you, sort of kind of like, oh, okay, what 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 do I what do I think about this? Um, and so, yeah. Well, and of course, the, the in the Roman Catholic rite, I mean, you have the Latin Mass that we call the Extraordinary Form, but then we have Mass in the vernacular as well. Mm-hmm. I attend both. I mm-hmm. typically go to the Latin Mass because, I mean, it's it's my neighborhood parish, and that's just kind of like our liturgical home. And I know you totally yeah. get that language. I I totally think that there's other valid expressions of liturgy that in, include yeah. cultural aspects of the people experiencing them. Mm-hmm. And I think the key is always is the focus on Jesus, is the focus on the sacrifice. Are we Mm -hmm. there? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, my experience in the Latin Mass is very powerful to me, but uh, it's it's not just my church. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I I think that's a really, that's well said. And also I think the incarnation as well, like gives such a, is is so central and gives that that sort of model for, for the kind of enculturation of, of, of the, the message and the person of Jesus. Um, he came to us, uh, in, 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 in flesh and our terms. And, and, and then we, as a church carry, carry that forward too. So, um, 
so yeah, I think that 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 was another thing that just sparked in my mind as you were thinking about it needs to be centered on him. So I told you I have squirrel brain. You were fair warned. But what would you want to, after all of our fun theological discussion yeah. and community discussion, what do you want the audience of your book to walk away with? Yeah, I think those who read this book, I, I would hope for them, it would be, I mean, se- several different things, but I, I think, um, I hope people who take the time to read it um, would feel sort of intellectually stimulated. I would hope they would feel edified spiritually. Uh, so, I, I, and, um, so, so those would be the two large headings of hopes that I would have for, for readers. My kind of primary hope would be, you know, really connected to um, seeing the, the, the goodness of the Christian faith, I think. Um, and whether that's somebody reading mostly because they're interested in these stories and maybe are sort of feel neutral religiously, or, you know, maybe they're a committed Christian, but don't know these stories at all, or they know the stories well, and they're a Christian. My, my hope would that they would, they would see that the questions and themes and, and um, difficult uh, concepts and realities that these works um, engage with, that they're important and they're needed, and that um, uh, the Christian faith does speak to these things. And, and we're called to, uh, to follow the Lord's leading in that, in a way that is um, engaged in the herd of the world um, and not withdrawn from it. So that would be my hope was that readers would be able to say, you know, something like, wow, Native Son, that's a really, really um, well-written book. That's a really hard book. And it, it deals with a real hard truth. That's not abstract, but it's like actual, this is, this is reality in then. And in a lot of ways, uh, in newer ways and newer forms is reality now. But you know what? The Christian, the Christian faith actually, like it has something to say to that. And, uh, and God's people need to live into that truth. So, so that would be my hope is that, that people would recognize all of those pieces. And, and that's the, you know, seeing the, the wholeness and the goodness, uh, of our faith in, in theory, but then also being inspired to, to live faithfully out of that. What are you working on right now? Right now, I need. Uh, I'm working on a sermon for Gal- Galatians chapter five for for Sunday <laughs> that, that I'm that I have clear in my head, but I need to write. Uh, so that's what I'm working on now. Um, uh, I I don't have another uh, writing project that I'm working on. I think um, uh, I'm just uh, yeah, just enjoying that this book is out in the world and engaging with people on that, and just enjoying uh, time with my my family. And uh, we're at a new, starting a new church uh, here in Charlottesville, Virginia, where we just moved a couple months ago. So that's kind of the book that I'm writing now is a, a, a community of people trying to follow follow Jesus together. So I, I would love to write, uh, pick up pick up a project in the future. But at, at this point, I don't have any. Um, uh, that'll be a few years down the road. I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> this, this, yeah. this, is, this is what I had and it's it's out. So we'll see what comes next. This is one of my rando round questions, but I really, really wanted to ask it to you. So you get it regardless of what the dice roll in the next round. My question is, what question in all the interviews you're doing right now with the release of your book, what question do you wish someone had asked you, but they haven't asked yet? Yes. Oh, man, that is a really good question. I I struggle to I struggle to come up with an answer for that. Uh, Let me see. I think... um, Okay, so I don't know if I wish someone would ask me this, but it's something that I think about was just sort of like how hard it is to write. So I guess maybe question around the process or the experience of writing and not just the product of what I have written and the ideas, but the actual sort of like internal experience. Just because I, I, I obviously I had not done 
a writing project of this magnitude. So I had a sense of like, oh, this will be hard, but the actual the actual work that it takes and the internal sort of turmoil that writers, I would imagine, all go through when they put together a project is um, is is pretty staggering. So that that's something that um, I think about. So maybe that's the question that I, I wish people would would ask a little more the actual writer's journey. Mm, well, how about I ask you a little piece of that question? What spiritual practices did you take that helped feed your writing while you were doing it? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the intellectual side of things that, that was sort of baked into the work in terms of um, sort of spiritual reading or theological reading. I think the the, the biggest thing um, is really just prayer and then sort of... Uh, trying to get over myself um, and, and trying to remind myself that I'm not writing this book uh, to prove how smart I am, but as an act of, surface, of service, as an offering. So I think it was really um, not that that was necessarily like a breath prayer or like some, something that um, I was doing over and over, but it was sort of the recollection of that truth that uh, I, I'm, I'm not trying to justify myself. I'm trying to serve my readers um, and, and point them point them in the direction of, of the faith and the kingdom. So it was bringing that to mind. That was sort of the key spiritual practice for me in writing was that the remind and that that sort of lowered my my some of my turmoil where I was like, yeah, I, I don't need to I don't need to try to come across a particular way or smart or worry about what someone's going to say, like what what's going to really serve the reader the best. And that's the gift that I want to give. So coming back to that truth of, of service uh, rather than uh, performance or mm. sort of, um, you know, parading, you know, uh, flowery prose or, or, or whatever I, I thought I was trying to do. It's almost like when St. Augustine said the three main virtues are humility, humility, and humility. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should listen harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, what's, <laughs> wait, what's the fourth one? Those, those, I don't like those. What's the, what's the other? Is there another one? See, number one. <laughs> <laughs> or, or you could go with prudence, which no one wants to do either. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. There's options. There's options. But are you ready for the dice? Are you ready for the nerdy yeah. rando round? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Okay, so you get to pick. I have tie-dye dice. Oh, wow. Or, wait for it, pink with mermaid sparkles. I'm going to go with the pink with the mermaid sparkles. That's not even a, that's not a hard choice. It's not a hard choice. I no, mean, that's it's, not a hard choice. All right, well, here we go. They're Let's see what good. we they are that good. People just don't... Do you know there are people in this world that are anti-glitter? Yeah, I've heard about these folks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I think I should take to Twitter and um, attack them personally. All right. Let's see. Over-caffeinated question number 86. Oh, snap. Okay. Okay. You are going to laugh. The Lord has a sense of humor. The Lord has a sense of humor. You, Wait till you hear this question, Claude. What do you wish people understood about writing? Hey, <laughs> come on. It was meant to be. The question I wish was asked. Um, a few, so I can think of a few different things now, actually. Okay. This is a new angle. Uh, so I think one, one thing that writing is not just expression, it's discovery. So you, you, know, you don't just write because you know what you think. You write uh, to find out what you do think, uh, or to clarify where you may have an inkling or direction, but, but writing is a, a practice of discovery. Um, so I would often find, 
you know, I, I obviously knew what books I wanted to talk about and working on a chapter, knew the sort of angle, but it would actually be through writing in that I would discover a key insight or a key point that would be developed for a big part of the chapter. So for example, in the Invisible Man chapter, I do kind of like a, almost a, um, uh, we're talking about uh, Augustine, uh, church fathers, almost a sort of like spiritual reading of one of the passages where I kind of do an allegorical reading of blood sort of. Um, and that was an insight that I felt was like, well, this is really important to the, to the book and to the, to, uh, to, to the book that I was analyzing. I did not come in knowing I wanted to do that. I discovered that through writing. So, mm-hmm. so I think writing is not just expression, but discovery, um, maybe discovery through expression. Um, I think of just the, how hard it is to write. So like, even if you, so if you're reading a book and you're like, this book isn't very good, but just the fact that like someone wrote it, it's like, that was really hard for them to write that. So, so um, and I think the same with movies where it's easy to be like, wow, that's a really bad movie. It's like, that, that probably took someone like five years to like, to make that, you know, with this team of people. So I think just the difficulty of the task, because it is such a, uh, it requires such discipline. And most of the time you're doing it all by yourself. Um, and so there's a huge, sense of kind of inner wrestling insecurity there's a writer steven pressfield who has a book called um the uh, war the war of art, of art. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it talks about the resistance that can you this sort of force that goes against you whenever you try to create and and i think writers like musicians or, or uh, you know all, all different sort of creatives uh, anyone trying to make something positive or, or uh, constructive deal with and so I, I would just i would just want people to know that about the writing challenge so that they can uh, be appreciative of, of writers and also as they try to write that they can know hey you're not weird if if you feel these sort of obstacles like the greatest writer to the newest writer uh, I think this just kind of comes with the territory thank you for that well and it, it just you know Pressfield's book is not a religious book but but like as a Christian when you read it it's pure spiritual warfare yeah that yeah. when yeah. I mean because God is inherently creative. Satan is inherently destructive because mm-hmm. he is incapable of creating. And so if we try to co-create with God, he's going to try to give us the smackdown and he's going to yep. try to to discourage us because like you said when we're engaging in that creative work, it is discovery. Yeah. And what's out there to discover but God? I mean, mm-hmm. he's in all these yeah. things. So yeah, he he doesn't like that at all. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. why he's telling people not to read. I'm here to yeah. tell people read a book. Yeah, please yeah. read a book. Let's let's at least try to get it up to like 65 percent of people reading one book a year. But I think we all can do better. Five minutes a day. Come on, we can do it. All right. Let's see. Ninety nine. What's your favorite podcast? Oh man. Uh, I can. I'll cheat a little bit. It depends what I like. What, so I have a favorite. Um, favorite for different categories. Um, so I like for, um, kind of like theology. Um, there's a podcast called on script. It's the blue ones kind of like new Testament, um, like kind of like biblical, biblical, um, criticism. Um, don't mind me actually like looking at my phone to see, <laughs> see the, no the, other, the other ones that I like. Um, for sports, I like the NBA. I like the Zach Lowe podcast. And then for, uh, for music, I like a podcast called Clock Radio Speakers. They do kind of like analysis of hip hop. And then I'll give one other podcast. Um, uh, I'm going to give two others. Is that okay? I'm really, I'm really cheap. Go right These ahead. Are- <laughs> 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 um, I like, uh, I, I also, I, I do like this podcast from Ascension Press, um, uh, Bible in the Year with Father Mike Schmitz. Um, so I like that. It's a nice a Bible recap podcast. 
And then uh, I also like uh, the Daily Office podcast, which reads the uh, the sort of morning prayer from the Anglican bo- uh, Common Book of Prayer, or Book of Common Prayer, rather. So those are the things. So sports, theology, prayer, devotion, music, those are those are what I listen to. Nice. Nice. Let's see what, what else we come up with. Have you ever, have you, you know, these dice are for like playing Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. Have you ever played role-playing games? I I have tried to get people to play those games with me because they seem like the type of games that I would really like. And I fail to get people who want to play. So uh, it's a very sad, sad development in my life. Maybe that'll change as my children get older. You know, my husband learned how to play from his dad. His mm. very, very devout dad, very devout, was the dungeon master for his three sons. And uh, no, I think you would absolutely love it because it's all about story yes, and yeah. discovery. Yes. And yes. especially if you play with other people who have the same moral palate as you, when you play yeah. with other Christians. That's, yeah, that makes sense. It, it, that's kind of key because some people try to express their more base selves. Mm. In the game. So you want to make sure that you're playing with people that are aspiring to the highest good rather than Mm. trying to find an ugly space. But Mm. it can be a ton of fun. What does this mean? This means nine. Do you speak any foreign languages? Ooh, not really. Uh, A little bit of French, um, but not really. Like most of us Americans. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm working on it. I have a couple of my French books here. I'm working on it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get that down. My mom speaks it, so I, I can, I can pick up a decent amount and have some very basic expressions. But yeah, my, my husband's Canadian and he's actually bilingual. But so we, we use some French in the house too. But uh, it it took me being married to him for about I don't know seven years before. let me just put it this way. He said when I would try to speak French, a French teacher would die because <laughs> mine was so bad. So there you have it. But congratulations on learning and growing more. My last question to all of my guests is what gives you hope right now? I think what gives me hope right now, and, and I'll take that in a very literal sense, literal sense right now. Uh, I mentioned um, what I'm working on now is a sermon for Galatians 5. The Galatians, I think it's 516. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, if you if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Um, there's a little uh, debate on some of the translation if he's saying two commands, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. I, th- uh, I think, and I think I stand with the right camp, uh, the wise, wise interpreters, um, that it's, it's not two commands. It's one command with a, with a result. Like if you walk mm-hmm. by the spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's almost a, a promise, uh, an encouragement. And, uh, if, if listeners would, if they're not familiar, I would encourage you to read the, the fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh in that passage, Galatians chapter five. And um, you'll see it's not just, it, it's not primarily just individual things. It's why our world is fractured, right? And our turn away from God and the exaltation of self and the rejection of others. Um, this is why we have strife, division, envy, jealousy, uh, hatred, all of these things uh, permeating uh, the human world. Um, this is not just because we don't try hard enough, but because there's something fundamentally broken. Um, and I think what gives me hope right now is that Paul's encouragement is that if we walk by the Spirit, though though we don't attain perfection in this in this life, we we won't be those who are habitually marked by the works of the flesh. We'll, we'll actually um, Christ will work in us by a Spirit that will will bear the fruit of the Spirit: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, um, hope, self control. So I think what gives me hope right now is the fact that that's the promise that's given to uh, 
to all who who will uh, who will look and hold to to Christ is that His Spirit will be at work in us in this way. And so, as I think about just uh, personal challenges, I think about community challenges, I think about national global challenges. Um, the hope of Christ's Spirit uh, working in us uh, gives gives me hope. That's a beautiful reflection to leave us with, and I will pray for you as you work on that sermon. Thank you. And uh, I just. I could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately, I don't think my listeners want to listen to a four hour long <laughs> podcast. Um, but I want to thank you so much for writing the book, for taking the time, for putting in all of that hard work, mental, spiritual, physical, the time. And especially I know you have a family and it's it's no small task to write and it's no small task to be a father. So pretty important work you've been doing. Mm. Thank you, Jane. Thanks for having me on. I've enjoyed this. All right. So I guess we'll just have to do it again when that next book that we don't know about yet comes out, huh? You know what? I would be glad to. It might be a while from now, but I would be happy about that. It's all in his timing. Yes. All right. Take care. Okay. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.